CD8. Right, lads, he said. You heard. Pounce and Gaskin, you take the hurry-up wagon up to the bridge and turn it over. Waddy and Nancy Ball, you too, Fred, go and nick some carts. You grew up round here, so don't tell me you've never done that before. I want a couple blocking the streets down here, and the rest, I want you to run them into an alley mouths until they wedge. You men know the area. Block up all the little backways. Colon rubbed his nose. We could do that on the riverside, Sarge, but it's all alleys on the shade side. Can't block them all. I wouldn't worry about those, said Vimes. Cavalry can't come through there. You know what they call a horse in the shades? Colon grinned. Yes, Sarge, lunch. Right. The rest of you, get all the benches and tables out of the watch house. It dawned on him that none of the men had moved. There was a certain problem in the air. Well? Billy Wiglet removed his helmet and wiped his forehead. Er, how far is this going to go, Sarge? All the way, Billy. But we took the oath, Sarge, and now we're disobeying orders and helping rebels. Doesn't seem right, Sarge, said Wiglet wretchedly. You took an oath to uphold the law and defend the citizens without fear or favour, said Vimes, and to protect the innocent. That's all they put in. Maybe they thought those were the important things. Nothing in there about orders, even from me. You're an officer of the law, not a soldier of the government. One or two of the men looked longingly at the other end of the street, empty and inviting. But I won't stop anyone who wants to walk, said Vimes. They stopped looking. Hello, Mr Keel, said a sticky voice behind him. Yes, Nobby, he said without turning round. Here, how'd you detect it was me, Sergeant? It's an amazing talent, kid, said Vimes, turning against all wisdom to look at the urchin. What's been happening? Big right and say all square, Sarge. They say people have broken into Dolly's sister's watch house and thrown the lieutenant out the window. And there's loot in all over the place, they say, and the day watch are out chasing people, only most of them are hiding now, cos... Yeah, I get the picture, sighed Vimes. Carser had been right. Coppers were always outnumbered, so being a copper only worked when people let it work. If they refocused and realised you were just another standard idiot with a pennyworth of metal for a badge, you could end up a smear on the pavement. He could hear shouting now a long way off. He looked around at the hesitant watchman. On the other hand, gentlemen, he said, if you are going to leave, where are you going to go to? The same thought had clearly occurred to Colon and the others. We'll get the cots, he said, hurrying off. And I want a penny, said Nobby, holding out a grubby hand. To the boy's amazement, Vimes gave him a dollar, saying, and just keep telling me everything, will you? Tables and benches were already being dragged out of the watch house, and after only a couple of minutes, Waddy arrived with a cartload of empty barrels. Barricades were easy in these streets. It was keeping them clear that it had always been the problem. The watchmen set to work. This was something they understood. They'd done it when they were kids, and perhaps they thought, hey, this time we're wearing uniforms. We can't be in the wrong. While Vimes was struggling to wedge a bench into the growing wall, he was aware of people behind him. He worked steadily, however, until someone gave a delicate cough. Then he turned. Yes, can I help you? There was a small group of people, and it was clear to Vimes that it was a group pushed together out of shared terror, because by the look of them, they'd have nothing to do with one another if they could possibly avoid it. The spokesman, or at least the one in front, looked almost exactly like the kind of person Vimes had pictured when thinking about the hedge argument murder. Um, officer? Yes, sir. What, er, uh, are you doing exactly? Keeping the peace, sir. This peace, to be exact. You say that there's uh, rioting and soldiers on the way? Very likely, sir. You don't have to ask him, Rutherford. It's his duty to protect us, snapped the woman who was standing beside the man with an air of proprietorship. 
Vimes changed his mind about the man. Yes, he had that furtive look of a timid domestic poisoner about him, the kind of man who would be appalled at the idea of divorce, but would plot woman's slaughter every day. And you could see why. He gave the lady a nice warm smile. She was holding a blue vase. "'Can I help you, ma'am?' he said. "'What are you intending to do about us being murdered in our beds?' she demanded. "'Well, it's not four o'clock yet, ma'am, but if you'll let me know when you want to retire.' Vimes was impressed at the way the woman drew herself up. Even Sybil, in full duchess mode, with the blood of twenty generations of arrogant ancestors behind her, could not have matched her. "'Rutherford, are you going to do something about this man?' she said. Rutherford looked up at Vimes. Vimes was aware that he was villainously unshaven, dishevelled, dirty, and probably starting to smell. He decided not to load more troubles on the man's back. "'Would you and your lady care to assist with our barricade?' he said. "'Oh, yes, thank you, very,' Rutherford began, but was outgunned again. "'Some of that furniture looks very dirty,' said Mrs. Rutherford. "'And aren't those beer barrels?' "'Yes, ma'am, but they're empty ones,' said Vimes. "'Are you sure? I refuse to cower behind alcohol. I have never approved of alcohol, and neither has Rutherford.' "'I can assure you, ma'am, that any beer barrel in the presence of my men for any length of time will be empty,' said Vimes. "'You may rest assured on that score.' "'And are your men sober and clean living?' the woman demanded. "'Whenever no alternative presents itself, ma'am,' said Vimes. This seemed acceptable. Mrs. Rutherford was like rust in that respect. She listened to the tone of voice, not the words. "'I think perhaps it would be a good idea, dear, if we made a haste to—' Rutherford began. "'Not without father.' "'said his wife. "'No problem, ma'am,' said Vimes. "'Where is he?' "'On our barricade, of course, "'which was, let me tell you, "'a rather better barricade altogether.' "'Jolly good, ma'am,' said Vimes. "'If he'd like to come over here, we'll... "'Um, you don't quite understand, sir,' "'murmured Rutherford. "'He is, um, on the barricade.' "'Vimes looked at the other barricade "'and then looked harder.' It was just possible to see, near the top of the piled-up furniture, an overstuffed armchair. Further examination suggested that it was occupied by a sleeping figure in carpet slippers. "'He's very attached to his armchair,' sighed Rutherford. "'It's going to be an heirloom,' said his wife. "'Be so kind as to send your young men to collect our furniture, will you? And be careful with it. Put it at the back somewhere where it won't get shot at.' Vimes nodded at Sam and a couple of the other men as Mrs. Rutherford picked her way over the debris and headed for the watch-house. "'Is there going to be any fighting?' said Mr. Rutherford anxiously. "'Possibly, sir. I'm not very good at that sort of thing, I'm afraid.' "'Don't worry about that, sir.' Vimes propelled the man over the barricade and turned to the rest of the little group. He'd been aware of eyes boring into him, and now he traced the rays back to source, a young man with black trousers, a frilly shirt and long hair. "'This is a ruse, isn't it?' said the man. "'You'll get us in your power and we'll never be seen again, eh?' "'Stay out then, Reg,' said Vimes. He cupped his hands and turned back to the Whalebone Lane barricade. "'Anyone else who wants to join us had better get a move on,' he shouted. "'You don't know that's my name,' said Reg Shoe. Vimes stared into the big protruding eyes. The only difference between Reg now and the Reg he'd left back in the future was that Constable Shoe was rather greyer and was held together in places by stitches.' Zombiehood would come naturally to Reg. He was born to be dead. He believed so strongly in things that some kind of inner spring kept him going. He'd make a good copper. He didn't make a very good revolutionary. People as meticulously fervent as Reg got real revolutionaries worried. It was the way he stared. "'You're Reg Shoe,' he said. "'You live in Whalebone Lane.' "'Ah, oh, you've got secret files on me, they said Reg with terrifying happiness. "'Not really, no. Now, if you'd be so good—' "'I'll bet you've got a big file on me a mile long,' said Reg. 
Not a whole mile, Reg, no, said Vimes. Listen, Reg, we... I demand to see it. Vimes sighed. Mr Shoe, we don't have a file on you. We don't have a file on anyone, understand? Half of us can't read without using a finger. Reg, we are not interested in you. Reg Shoe's slightly worrying eyes remained fixed on Vimes's face for a moment, and then his brain rejected the information as contrary to whatever total fantasy was going on inside. Well, it's no good you torturing me because I won't reveal any details about my comrades in the other revolutionary cells, said Reg. OK, I won't then. Now, perhaps that's how we work, see? None of the cadres knows about the other ones. Really? Do they know about you? said Vimes. For a moment, Reg's face clouded. Pardon? Well, you said you don't know about them, said Vimes. So, do they know about you? He wanted to add... You're a cell of one, Reg. The real revolutionaries are silent men with poker player eyes and probably don't know or care if you exist. You've got the shirt and the haircut and the sash and you know all the songs, but you're no urban guerrilla. You're an urban dreamer. You turn over rubbish bins and scrawl on walls in the name of the people who'd clip you round the ear if they found you doing it. Would you believe? Ah, so you're a secret operative, he said to get the poor man off the hook. Reg brightened. That's right, he said. The people are the sea in which the revolutionary swims. Like swordfishes, Vimes tried. Pardon? And you're a flounder, thought Vimes. Ned's a revolutionary. He knows how to fight and he can think, even if he is on the skew. But Reg, you really ought to be indoors. Well, I can see you're a dangerous individual, he said. We'd better have you where we can keep an eye on you. Hey, that's right. You can undermine the enemy from within. The relieved Reg raised a fist in salute and carried a table to the new barricade with revolutionary speed. There was some hurried conversation behind the old makeshift barricade, already being denuded of Mrs Rutherford's furniture. This was interrupted by the clatter of hoofbeats from the far Fecalmine Road and a sudden burst of instant decisiveness on the part of the remainder of the crowd. They poured towards the new official barricade, with Lance Constable Vimes bringing up the rear, fairly well hampered by a dining-room chair. "'Mind out for that!' shouted a female voice from somewhere behind him. "'It's one of a set!' Vimes put his hand on the young man's shoulder. "'Just give me your crossbow, will you?' he said. The horseman came closer. Sam Vimes was not good at horses. Something in him resented being addressed by anyone eight feet above the ground. He didn't like the sensation of being looked at by nostrils. He didn't like being talked down to.' By the time they'd reached the barricade, he'd clambered around to the front of it and was standing in the middle of the street. They slowed down. It was probably the way he didn't move, but held the crossbow in the nonchalant manner of someone who knows how to use it, but has decided not to for the moment. "'Ill there,' said a trooper. "'Yeah?' said Vimes. "'Are you in charge?' "'Yeah, can I help you? Where are your men?' Vimes jerked a thumb towards the growing barricade. On the top of the heap, Mrs Rutherford's father was snoring peacefully. "'Well, that's a barricade,' said the trooper. "'Well done. There's a man waving a flag.' Vimes turned. Surprisingly, it was Reg. Some of the men had brought out the old flag from Tilden's office and stuck it on the barricade, and Reg was the sort to wave any flag going. "'Probably high spirit, sir,' said Vimes. "'Don't worry, we're all fine.' "'It's a damn barricade, man! A rebel barricade!' said the second trooper. "'Oh, boy, thought Vimes. They have shiny, shiny breastplates and wonderfully fresh pink faces. Not exactly. It's, you stupid fellow, 
Don't you know that old barricades are to be torn down by order of the patrician? The third horseman, who had been staring at Vimes, urged his horse a little closer. What's that pip on your shoulder, officer? he said. Means I'm sergeant at arms, special rank. And who are you? He doesn't have to tell you that, said the first trooper. Really, said Vimes. The man was getting on his nerves. Well, you're just a trooper and I'm a bleeding sergeant, and if you dare to speak to me like that again, I'll have you down off that horse and thump you across the ear, understand? Even the horse took a step backwards. The trooper opened his mouth to speak, but the third horseman raised a white-gloved hand. Oh, dear, thought Vimes, focusing on the sleeve of the red jacket. The man was a captain. Not only that, he was an intelligent one by the look of him. He hadn't mouthed off until he had a chance to assess the situation. You got them sometimes, they could be dangerously bright. I note, Sergeant at Arms, said the captain, enunciating the rank with care and without apparent sarcasm, that the flag over the barricade is the flag of Ankh-Morpork. It's the one of our watch-house, said Vimes, and added, Sir, you know that the patrician has declared that the building of barricades is an act of rebellion? Yes, sir. And? said the captain patiently. Well, he would say that, sir, wouldn't he? The faintest hint of a smile skimmed across the captain's face. "'We can't allow lawlessness, sergeant-at-arms. "'If we all disobeyed the law, where would we be?' "'There's more coppers per person behind that barricade "'than anywhere else in the city, sir,' said Vimes. "'You could say it's the most law-abiding place around.' "'Now there was the sound of raised voices from behind the barricade. "'We own all your helmets, we own all your shoes, "'we own all your generals, touch us and you'll lose. "'More porkier, more porkier, more por... "'Rebel song, sir,' said Trooper Number 1. "'The captain sighed. "'If you listen, Heppelwhite, you might note "'that it is the national anthem sung very badly,' he said. "'We can't allow rebels to sing that, sir.' Vimes saw the captain's expression. It had a lot to say about idiots. "'Raising the flag and singing the anthem, Heppelwhite, "'are, while somewhat suspicious, not in themselves acts of treason,' said the captain, "'and we are urgently required elsewhere.' He saluted Vimes, who found himself returning the salute. "'We shall leave you, sergeant-at-arms. "'I trust your day will be full of interest. "'In fact, I know it.' "'But it's a barricade, sir,' the trooper insisted, glaring at Vimes. "'It's just a pile of furniture, man. "'People have been spring-cleaning, I expect. "'You'll never be an officer if you can't see straight. "'Follow me, if you please.' "'With a last nod to Vimes, the captain led his men away at a trot. "'Vimes leaned against the barricade, put the crossbow on the ground, "'and fished out the cigar-case. "'He fumbled in his pocket, pulled out the battered carton of little cigars,' and with some delicacy slotted them into place. Hmm. To the left was Cable Street. In front, Treacle Mine Road stretched all the way to Easy Street. Now, if a man could get barricades all the way up to Easy Street, there'd be quite a slice of the lower hub side behind it, which would be a lot easier to protect. We'll do it. After all, we did it. Of course, that'd mean having the Unmentionables headquarters in here with us, that's like pitching your tent over a nest of vipers. We'll handle that. We handled it. A couple of elderly people pushing a cart full of miscellaneous belongings approached the barricade. They gave Vimes a look of mute pleading. He nodded towards it and they scuttled through. All we need now is... Sorge? Fred Colon was leaning over the top of the heap. 
he looked more out of breath than usual. "'Yes, Fred. "'There's lots of people coming across the pond's bridge. "'There's things happening everywhere, they say. "'Shall we let them in?' "'Any soldiers?' "'I don't reckon so, Sarge. "'It's mostly old people and kids, and my granny. "'Trustworthy?' "'Not when she's had a few pints.' "'Let them in, then.' "'Er,' uh, said Colon. "'Yes, Fred.' "'Some of them is watchmen. "'A few of the lads from Dimwell and a lot from Kingsway. "'I know most of them, and those I don't know "'are known to the ones I do, if you catch my meaning. "'How many?' "'About twenty. "'One of them's Dye Dickens, sergeant of Dimwell. "'He says they were told they'd got to shoot people "'and most of them deserted on the spot.' "'Quit, Fred,' said Vimes. "'We don't desert. We're civilians.' "'Now I want young Vimes and you and Waddy "'and maybe half a dozen others out here "'fully kitted up in two minutes, understand? "'And tell Wiglet to organise squads "'ready to move the barricades forward at my signal.' "'Move them, Sarge. "'I thought barricades stood still.' "'And tell Snout he's got two minutes to find me a bottle of brandy,' said Vimes, ignoring this. "'A big one.' "'Are we taking the law into our own hands again, Sarge?' said Colon. Vimes stared at the entrance to Cable Street, and was aware of the weight of the cigar case in his pocket. "'Yes, Fred. Only this time we're going to squeeze.' The two guards on the Unmentionables' headquarters watched with interest as the small contingent of watchmen marched up the street and came to a halt in front of them. "'Oh, look, it's the army,' said one of them. "'What do you want?' "'Nothing, sir,' said Corporal Colon. "'Then you can push off.' "'Can't do that, sir. Aim under orders.' The guards stepped forward. Fred Colon was sweating, and they liked to see things like that. It was a dull job, and most of the unmentionables were out on more interesting assignments. They entirely failed to hear the soft tread behind them. "'Orders to do what, mister?' said one of them, looming over Colon. There was a sigh and a soft thud behind him. "'Be a decoy?' quavered Colon. The remaining guard turned and met a Mrs. Goodbody Number 5 negotiator coming the other way. As the man slipped to the ground, Vimes winced and massaged his knuckles. "'Important lesson, lads,' he said. "'It hurts, no matter what you do. "'You two, drag these two into the shadows to sleep it off. "'Vimes and Nancy Ball, you come with me.' The key to winning, as always, was looking as if you had every right, nay, duty, to be where you were. It helped if you could also suggest in every line of your body that no one else had any rights to be doing anything anywhere whatsoever. It came easily to an old copper. Vimes led the way into the building. There were a couple of guards inside, heavily armed, behind a stone barrier that made them ideally placed to ambush any unwise intruders. They put their hands on the hilts of their swords when they saw Vimes. "'What's happening out there?' said one. "'Oh, people are getting restless,' said Vimes. "'Getting very bad across the river, they say. "'That's why we've come for the prisoners in the cells.' "'Yeah? On whose authority?' Vimes swung his crossbow up. "'Mr Burley and Mr Strong in the arm,' he said, and grinned. The two guards exchanged glances. "'Who the other day?' said one. There was a moment of silence, followed by Vimes saying, out of the corner of his mouth, "'Lance Constable Vimes?' "'Yes, sir. What make of these crossbows?' "'Er... Uh, Hines Brothers, sir. They're Mark Threes. Not Burley and Strong in the arm. Never heard of them, sir. Damn. Five years too early, thought Vimes. And it was such a good line, too. Let me put it another way, he said to the guards. Give me any trouble and I will shoot you in the head. That wasn't a good line, but it did have a certain urgency, and the bonus was it was simple enough, even for an unmentionable, to understand. You've only got one arrow, said a guard. There was a click from beside Vimes. Sam had raised his bow, too. "'There's two now, and my lad here is in training, so he might eat you anywhere,' said Vimes. "'Drop your swords on the floor. 
Get out the door. Run away. Do it now. Don't come back. There was a moment of hesitation, just a moment, and then the men ran for it. Fred will watch our backs, said Vimes. Come on. All the watch houses were pretty much the same. Stone steps led down to the cellars. Vimes hurried down them, swung open a heavy door, and stopped. Cells never smelled that good at the best of times. At the best of times, even at Treacle Mine Road, hygiene consisted of a bucket per cell and as much slopping out as Snouty felt inclined to do. But at the worst of times, the cells below Treacle Mine Road never smelled of blood. The beast stirred. In this room there was a big wooden chair. In this room there was by the chair a rack. The chair was bolted to the floor. It had wide leather straps. The rack held clubs and hammers. In this room, that was all the furnishings. The floor was dark and sticky. Down the length of it, a gully ran to a drain. Boards had been nailed over the tiny window at street level. This wasn't a place where light was welcomed. And all the walls, and even the ceiling, were padded heavily with sacks stuffed with straw. Sacks had even been nailed to the door. This was a very thorough cell. Not even sound was meant to escape. A couple of torches did nothing at all for the darkness except to make it dirty. Behind him, Vimes heard Nancy Ball throw up. In a strange kind of dream, he walked across the floor and bent down to pick up something that gleamed in the torchlight. It was a tooth. He stood up again. A closed wooden door led off on one side of the cellar. On the other, a wider tunnel almost certainly led to the cells. Vimes took a torch out of its holder, handed it to Sam and pointed along the tunnel. There were footsteps accompanied by a jingle of keys heading towards the door and a light growing brighter underneath it. The beast tensed. Vimes dragged the largest club out of the rack and stepped swiftly to the wall beside the door. Someone was coming, someone who knew about this room, someone who called themselves a copper. Getting a firm two-handed grip, Vimes raised the club and looked across the stinking room and saw young Sam Vimes watching him, young Sam with his bright shiny badge and face full of strangeness. Vimes lowered the club, leaned it delicately against the wall, and pulled the leather cosh from his pocket. Shackled, not quite understanding, the beast was dragged back into the night. A man stepped through the door, whistling under his breath, took a few steps into the room, saw young Sam, opened his mouth, and then fell fast asleep. He was a big man and hit the cobbles heavily. He had a leather hood over his head and was naked to the waist. A big ring of keys hung from his belt. Vimes darted into the corridor behind the door, around a corner, burst into a small, brightly lit room and grabbed a man he found in there. This one was a lot smaller and suppressed a scream as Vimes dragged him up out of his chair. "'And what does Daddy do at work all day, mister?' he roared. The little man was suddenly clairvoyant. One look at Vimes's eyes told him how short his future might be. "'I'm just a clerk, a clerk. I just write things down,' he protested. He held up a pen by way of desperate demonstration. Vimes looked at the desk. There were compasses there and other geometer's tools, symbols of Swing's insane sanity. There were books and folders stuffed with paperwork, and there was a yard-long steel ruler. He grabbed it in his spare hand and slammed it on the desktop. The heavy steel made a satisfying noise. And, he said, his face a few inches from the struggling man, and I measure people. It's all in the captain's book. I just measure people. I don't do anything wrong. I'm not a bad man. Again the ruler slammed into the desk, but this time Vimes had twisted it, and the steel edge chopped into the wood. 
Want me to cut you down to size, mister? The little man's eyes rolled. Please? Is there another way out of here? Vimes slapped the rule down on the desk. The flicker of eyes was enough. Vimes saw a doorway in the wall, almost lost in the wooden panelling. Good. Where does it come out? Ah. Uh, now Vimes was nose to nose with the man who, in police parlance, was helping him with his inquiries. You're all alone here, he said. You have no friends here. You sat and took notes for a torturer, a bloody torturer. And I see a desk, and it's got a desk drawer, and if you ever, ever want to hold a pen again, you'll tell me everything I want to know. Warehouse, the man gasped. Next door. Right, sir. Thank you, sir. You've been very helpful, said Vimes, lowering the limp body to the floor. Now, sir, I'm just handcuffing you to this desk for a moment, sir, for your protection. Who, who from? Me. I'll kill you if you try to run away, sir. Vimes hurried back to the main chamber. The torturer was still out cold. Vimes hauled him up into the chair with great effort and pulled off his hood and recognised the face. The face? Yes, but not the person. That is, it was the kind of face you saw a lot in Ankh-Morpork. Big, bruised and belonging to someone who'd never quite learned that hitting people long after they'd lost consciousness was a wicked thing to do. He wondered if the man actually liked beating people to death. They often didn't think about it. It was just a job. Well, he wasn't about to ask him. He buckled him in with every strap, even the one that went across his forehead, pulling the last one tight just as the man came round. The mouth opened and Vimes stuffed the hood into it. Then he took the keyring and locked the main door. That should ensure a little extra privacy. He met young Sam coming the other way as he headed for the cells. The boy's face was white in the gloom. "'Found any,' said Vimes. "'Oh, Sarge.' "'Yes?' "'Oh, Sarge. Sarge.' Tears were running down the Lance Constable's face. Vimes reached out and steadied himself. Sam felt as though there were no bones left in his body. He was trembling. "'There's a woman in the last cells, and she... "'Sarge. Oh, Sarge.' "'Try taking deep breaths,' said Vimes. "'Not that this air is fit to breathe.' And there's a room right at the end, Sarge. Oh, Sarge, Nancy Ball fainted again, Sarge. You didn't, said Vimes, patting him gently on the back. But there's... Let's rescue what we can, shall we, lad? But we were on the hurry-up wagon, Sarge. What? said Vimes, and then it dawned. But we didn't hand anyone over, lad, he said, remember? But I've been on it before, Sarge. All the lads have. We just handed people over and went back to the watch house for cocoa, Sarge. Well, you'd had orders, said Vimes, for what good that did. We didn't know. Not exactly, thought Vimes. We didn't ask. We just shut our minds to it. People went in through that front door, and some of the poor devils came out through the secret door, not always in one box. They hadn't measured up nor did we. He heard a low, visceral sound from the boy. Sam had spotted the torturer in the chair. He shook himself away from Vimes, ran over to the rack and snatched up a club. Vimes was ready. He grabbed the boy, swung him round and twisted the thing out of his hand before murder was done. No, that's not the way. This is not the time. Hold it back. Tame it. Don't waste it. Send it back. It'll come when you call. You know he did those things shouted Sam, kicking at his legs. You said we had to take the law into our own hands. 
Ah, thought Vimes, this is just the time for a long debate about the theory and practice of justice. Here comes the shortened version. You don't bash a man's brains out when he's tied to a chair. He did. And you don't. That's because you're not him. But they stand to attention, Lance Constable, shouted Vimes, and the straw-covered ceiling drank and deadened the sound. Sam blinked through reddened eyes. OK, Sarge, but are you going to snivel all day? Forget about this one. Let's get the living out, right? Hard to tell with... Sam began, wiping his nose. Do it! Follow me! He knew what was going to be in the dark arches of the cell tunnels, but that didn't make it any better. Some people could walk, or maybe hop. One or two had just been beaten up, but not so badly that they couldn't hear what was going on just out of sight and dwell on it. They cringed when the gates were opened, and whimpered as he touched them. No wonder Swing got his confessions. And some were dead. Others were... Well, if they weren't dead, they'd just gone somewhere in their heads. It was as sure as hell there was nothing for them to come back to. The chair had broken them again and again. They were beyond the help of any man. Just in case, and without any feeling of guilt, Vimes removed his knife and, well, gave what help he could. There was not a twitch, not a sigh. He stood up, black and red storm clouds in his head, you could almost understand a thug, simple as a fist, being paid decent money for doing something he didn't mind doing. But Swing had brains. Who really knew what evil lurked in the heart of men? Me. Who knew what sane men were capable of? Still me, I'm afraid. Vimes glanced at the door of the last room. No, he wasn't going in there again. No wonder it stank here. You can't hear me, can you? Oh, I thought you might. Vimes went to help young Sam bring Nancy Ball round. Then they half carried, half walked the prisoners out along the passage up into the warehouse. They laid them down and went back and dragged out the clerk whose name was Treblecock. Vimes explained to him the advantages of turning King's evidence. They were not major advantages except when they were compared with the huge disadvantages that would follow swiftly if he refused to do so. At that point, Treblecock, entirely of his own free will, volunteered. And Vimes stepped out into the early evening. Colon and the squad were still waiting. The whole business had taken only twenty minutes or so. The corporal saluted, and then his nose wrinkled. Yes, we stink, said Vimes. He unbuckled his belt and pulled off his breastplate and chainmail undershirt. The filth of the place had crawled everywhere. OK, he said. When he no longer felt he was standing in a sewer, I want a couple of men at the entrance over there in the warehouse, a couple round the back with truncheons, and the rest ready out here. Just like we talked about, okay? Wallop them first, arrest them later. Right, sir, Colon nodded. Men set off. And now give me that brandy, Vimes added. He unwrapped his neckerchief, soaked it in spirit, and tied it around the neck of the bottle. He heard the angry murmur from the squad. They'd just seen Sam and Nancy Ball bringing out some of the prisoners. There was worse, said Vimes, believe me. Top middle window, Fred. Right, Sarge, said Fred Colon, dragging his eyes away from the walking wounded. He raised his crossbow and neatly took out two window panes and a glazing bar. Vimes located his silver cigar case, removed a cigar, lit it, applied the match to the brandy-soaked rag, waited for it to catch and hurled the bottle through the window. There was a tinkle, a woomph of exploding spirit, and a flame that rapidly grew. 
"'Nice one, Sarge,' said Fred. "'Er, I don't know if this is the right time, Sarge, "'but we brought an extra bottle while we were about it.' "'Really, Fred, and what do you say?' "'Fred Colon glanced at the prisoners again. "'I say we use it,' he said. "'It went through one of the ground-floor windows. "'Smoke was already curling out from under the eaves. "'We haven't seen anyone go in or out apart from those guards,' "'said Fred as they watched it. "'I don't reckon there's many left in there.' "'Just so long as we destroy the nest,' said Vimes. "'The front door opened slightly, increasing the draught of the fire. "'Someone was checking. "'They'll wait until the last minute and come out fighting, Fred,' Vimes warned. "'Good, Sarge. It's getting darker,' said Fred Colon grimly. "'He pulled out his truncheon. "'Vimes walked round to the back of the building, "'nodded at the watchman waiting there, "'and locked the door with his stolen keyring. "'It was a narrow door, anyway.' Anyone inside would surely go for the big doors at the front, where they could spread out quickly and an ambush wasn't so easy. He checked on the warehouse, but that was an unlikely exit for the same reason. Besides, he'd locked the door to the cellar, hadn't he? Young Sam grinned at him. "'That's why you left the torturer tied up, eh, Sarge?' he said. "'Damn!' That hadn't occurred to him. He'd been so angry with the clerk he'd forgotten all about the brute in the chair. Vimes hesitated. "'But burning was a horrible death.' He reached for his knife and remembered it was back in its sheath in his sword belt. Smoke was already drifting up the passage into the warehouse. "'Give me your knife, Sam,' he said. "'I'll just go and check on him.' The lance constable handed over the knife with some reluctance. "'What are you going to do, Sarge?' "'You just get on with your job, lance constable, and I'll do mine.' Vimes slipped down into the passage. "'I'll cut one strap,' he thought. "'They're fiddly to undo, and then... "'Well, he'll have a chance even in the smoke. "'That's more than anyone else got.' "'He crept through the office and into the chamber. "'One torch was still alight, "'but the flame was just a nimbus in the yellow haze. "'The man was trying to rock the heavy chair, "'but it had been secured firmly to the floor. "'Some thought had gone into that chair. "'The straps on the buckles were hard to reach. "'Even if a prisoner got one hand free "'and that hand had not yet felt the professionalism of the torturer, "'they'd have a job to get out of the chair in a hurry. "'He reached down to cut a strap.' and heard a key in the lock. Vimes stepped swiftly into the darker shadows. The door opened, letting in the noise of distant shouting and the crackle of burning timber. It sounded as though the unmentionables were making a run for the clear air of the street. Find these swing, stepped delicately into the room, and locked the door behind him. He stopped when he saw the seated figure, and examined it carefully. He walked to the office doorway and looked inside. He peered into the cells, but by then Vimes had moved soundlessly around a wall. He heard Find Thee sigh. There was the familiar sound of moving steel, followed by a small, organic sort of noise and a cough. Vimes reached down for his sword. But it was up on the road too, wasn't it? Down here, the song in his head came back louder, with the background clink of metal that was always part of it. See how they rise up. "'Rise up, rise up.' "'He shook his head as if that had dislodged the memory. "'He had to concentrate. "'Vimes ran into the room and made a leap. "'It seemed to him that he stayed in the air a long time. "'There was the torturer, blood on his shirt. "'There was Swing just sliding the blade back into the stick. "'And Vimes, airborne, armed with just a knife. "'I'm going to get out of this,' he thought. "'I know, because I remember this. "'I remember Keel coming out and saying it was all over.' "'But that was the real keel. This is me. It doesn't have to happen the same way.' Swing jerked aside with surprising speed, trying to tug the blade out again. Vimes hit the sacks on the wall and had the sense to roll away immediately. The blade slashed down beside him, spilling straw onto the floor. 
He'd expected Swing to be a bad swordsman. That ridiculous stick suggested it. But he was a street swordsman. No finesse, no fancy moves, just some talent at moving the blade quickly and sticking it where you'd hoped it wasn't going to go. Fire crackled in the corner of the ceiling. Dripping spirit or sheer heat had worked itself through the heavy floorboards. A couple of the sacks began to blossom thick white smoke, which rolled above the men in a spreading cloud. He circled the chair, watching Swing intently. "'I believe you are making a grave mistake,' said Swing. Vimes concentrated on avoiding the sword. "'Hard times demand hard measures. Every leader knows that,' said Swing. Vimes dodged, but continued circling, knife at the ready. "'History needs its butchers as well as its shepherds, Sergeant.' Swing jabbed, but Vimes had been watching his eyes and swayed away in time. The man wasn't pleading. He didn't understand what had been done to require it. But he could see Vimes's face. There was no emotion in it at all. "'You must understand that in times of national emergency we cannot be too concerned with the so-called rights of—' Vimes darted sideways and along the haze-filled corridor to the office. Swing lurched after him. The blade sliced Vimes on the back of the leg. He sprawled onto the clerk's desk. Swing circled to find a stabbing point. He drew back the sword— Vimes's hand came up holding the steel ruler. The smack of its flat steel against the blade knocked it right out of the captain's grasp. Vimes pulled himself upright as though in a dream, following on the curve of the stroke. Send it back into the dark until you need it. He turned the ruler as the backstroke began, and it whispered through the air, edge first, leaving the hazy smoke rolling and coiling behind it. The tip caught swing across the neck. Behind Vimes, the white smoke tumbled out of the corridor. The ceiling of the bloody chamber was falling in. But he stayed, watching Swing with the same blank, intent expression. The man had raised his hands to his throat, blood spurting from between his fingers. He rocked, gasping for a breath that couldn't come, and fell backwards. Vimes tossed the ruler on top of him and limped away. Outside, there was the thunder of moving barricades. Swing opened his eyes. The world around him was grey, except for the black-clad figure in front of him. He sought, as he always did, to learn more about the new person by carefully examining their features. Um, your eyes are... Uh, your nose is... Uh, your chin... He gave up. Yes, said Death. I'm a bit of a tricky one. This way, Mr Swing... Lord Winder was, thought Vetinari, impressively paranoid. He'd even put a guard on the top of the whisky distillery that overlooked the palace grounds. Two guards, in fact. One of them was clearly visible as you rose over the parapet, but the other was lurking in the shadows by the chimneys. The late Honourable John Bleedwell had spotted only the first one. Vetinari watched impassively as the young man was dragged away. If you were an assassin, being killed in the pursuit of your craft was all part of the job, albeit the last part. You couldn't complain. And it meant that there was only one guard now, the other one taking Bleedwell, who had lived up to his name, downstairs. Bleedwell had worn black. Assassins always did. Black was cool, and besides, it was the rules. But only in a dark cellar at midnight was black a sensible colour. Elsewhere, Vetinari preferred dark green, or shades of dark grey. With the right colouring and the right stance, you vanished. People's eyes would help you vanish. They erased you from their vision. They fitted you into the background. Of course, he'd be expelled from the guild if caught wearing such clothing. 
He'd reasoned that this was much better than being expelled from the land of the upright and breathing. He'd rather not be cool than be cold. The guard, three feet away, lit a cigarette with no consideration for other people. What a genius Lord Winstanley Greville Pipe had been! What an observer! Havelock would love to have met him, or even to have visited his grave, but apparently that was inside a tiger somewhere, which, to Greville Pipe's gratified astonishment, he hadn't spotted until it was too late. Vetinari had done him a private honour, though. He had hunted down and melted the engraver's plates of some observations on the art of invisibility. He tracked down the other four extant copies, too, but had felt unable to burn them. Instead, he'd had the slim volumes bound together inside the cover of Anecdotes of the Great Accountants, Volume 3. He felt that Lord Winstanley Greville Pipe would rather appreciate that. Vetinari lay comfortably on the lead of the roof, patient as a cat, and watched the palace grounds below. Vimes lay face down on a table in the watch-house, wincing occasionally. "'Please hold still,' said Dr. Lorne. "'I've nearly finished. I suppose you'd laugh if I told you to take it easy.' "'Ha, <laughs> ha, ow! It's only a flesh wound, but you ought to get some rest. Ha, ha!' "'You've got a busy night ahead of you, so have I, I expect.' "'We should be okay if we've got the barricades all the way to Easy Street,' said Vimes, and was aware of a telling silence. He sat up on the table that Lorne was using as bench. "'We have got them to Easy Street, haven't we?' he demanded. "'The last I heard, yes,' said the doctor. "'The last you heard?' "'Well, technically no,' said Lorne. "'It's all getting bigger, John. "'The actual last I heard was someone saying, "'Why stop at Easy Street?' "'Oh, good grief! Yes, I thought so, too.' Vimes dragged his breeches up, fastened his belt, and limped out into the road, and an argument. There was Rosie Palm, and Sandra, and Red Shoe, and half a dozen others sitting around another table in the middle of the street. As Vimes stepped out into the evening, a plaintive voice said, "'You cannot fight for reasonably priced love!' "'You can, if you want me and the rest of the girls on board,' said Rosie. "'Free is not a word we wish to see used in these circumstances.' "'Oh, very well,' said Reg, making a note on a clipboard. "'We're all happy with truth, justice and freedom, are we?' "'And better sewers,' this was the voice of Mrs Rutherford. "'And something done about the rats.' "'I think we should be thinking about higher things, comrade Mrs Rutherford,' said Reg. "'I am not a comrade, Mr Shoe, nor is Mr Rutherford.' "'said Mrs Rutherford. "'We've always kept ourselves to ourselves, haven't we, Sidney?' "'I've got a question,' said someone in the crowd of onlookers. "'Addy Supple's my name, got a shoe shop in Cobblers.' "'Reg seized on this as an opportunity to avoid talking to Mrs Rutherford. "'Revolutionaries should not have to meet someone like Mrs Rutherford on their first day.' "'Yes, Comrade Supple,' he said. "'Nor are we boy joys,' said Mrs Rutherford, not willing to let things go. Eh, "'Bourgeoisie!' said Reg. Our manifesto refers to bourgeoisie. That's like bourgeoisie. Uh, bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie, said Mrs Rutherford, turning the word over on her tongue. That doesn't sound too bad. What sort of thing do they do? Anyway, it says here in Article 7 of this here list, Mr Supple ploughed on. People's Declaration of the Glorious 24th of May, said Reg. "'Yeah, yeah, right. Well, it says we'll seize hold of the means of production sort of thing. So what I want to know is, how does that work out regarding my shoe shop? I mean, I'm in it anyway, right? 
"'It's not like there's room for more and me and my lad Garbert and maybe one customer.' In the dark, Vimes smiled. Reg could never see stuff coming. "'Oh, but half the revolution all property will be held in common by the people. Um, "'That is, it'll belong to you, but also to everyone else. Do you see?' Comrade Supple looked surprised. "'But I'll be the one making your shoes.' "'Of course, but everything will belong to the people.' "'So who's going to pay for their shoes?' said Mr Supple. "'Everyone will pay a reasonable price for their shoes, "'and you won't be guilty of living off the sweat of the common worker,' said Reg shortly. "'Now, if we—' "'You mean the cows?' said Supple. "'What?' "'Well, there's only the cows and the lads at the tannery, "'and frankly all they do is stand in a field all day. "'Well, not the tannery boys, obviously, but look,' said Reg. "'Everything will belong to the people, and everyone will be better off. Do you understand?' The shoemaker's frown grew deeper. He wasn't certain if he was part of the people. "'I just thought we didn't want soldiers down our street and mobs and all that lot,' he said. Reg had a hunted look. He made a dive for safety. "'Well, at least we can agree on truth, freedom and justice, yes?' There was a chorus of nods. Everyone wanted those. They didn't cost anything.' A match flared in the dark, and they turned to see Vimes light a cigar. "'You'd like freedom, truth and justice, wouldn't you, Comrade Sergeant?' said Reg encouragingly. "'I'd like a hard-boiled egg,' said Vimes, shaking the match out. There was some nervous laughter, but Reg looked offended. "'In the circumstances, sorry, I think we should set our sights a little higher.' "'Well, yes, we could,' said Vimes, coming down the steps. He glanced at the sheets of paper in front of Reg. "'The man cared, he really did.' "'and he was serious, he really was. "'But, well, Reg, tomorrow the sun will come up again, "'and I'm pretty sure that whatever happens we won't have found freedom, "'and there won't be a whole lot of justice, "'and I'm damn sure we won't have found truth. "'But it's just possible that I might get a hard-boiled egg. "'What's all this about, Reg?' "'The People's Republic of Treacomon Road,' said Reg proudly. "'We are forming a government.' "'Oh, good,' said Vimes. "'Another one, just what we need.' Now, does anyone of you know where my damn barricades are gone? Hello, Mr Keel, said a glutinous voice. He looked down beside him. There, still wearing his hugely oversized coat, but now with the addition of a helmet much too large for him, was Nobby Nobbs. How did you get here, Nobby? My mum says I'm insidious, said Nobby, grinning. A concertina sleeve rose to the vicinity of Nobby's head, and Vimes realised that somewhere in there was a salute. She's right, said Vimes. "'So, we're... I'm acting constable now, Sarge,' said Nobby. "'Mr Colon said so. Gave me a spare helmet. "'I'm carving myself a badge out of... out of, um... "'What's that, like, waxy kind of stuff, like candles, but you can't eat it?' "'Soap, Nobby. Remember the word.' "'Right, Sarge, and then I'm going to carve a... "'Where have the barricades gone, Nobby? "'That'll cost... I am your sergeant, Nobby. "'We are not in a financial relationship.' "'Tell me where the bloody barricades are.' "'Um, probably near to Short Street, Sarge. "'It's all got a bit metaphysical, Sarge.' "'Major Clive Mountjoy Stanfast stared blankly at the map in front of him, "'trying to find some comfort. "'He was, tonight, the senior officer in the field. "'The commanders had gone to the palace for some party or other, "'and he was in charge. "'Vimes had conceded that the city's regiments had quite a few officers who weren't fools.' Admittedly, they got fewer the higher you went, but by accident or design, every army needs, in key if unglamorous posts, men who can reason and make lists 
and arrange for provisions and baggage wagons, and in general have an attention span greater than a duck. It's their job to actually run things, leaving the commanding officer free to concentrate on higher matters. And the Major was indeed not a fool, even though he looked like one. He was idealistic, and thought of his men as jolly good chaps, despite the occasional evidence to the contrary, and on the whole did the best he could with the moderate intelligence at his disposal. When he was a boy he'd read books about great military campaigns, and visited the museums and looked with patriotic pride at the paintings of famous cavalry charges, last stands and glorious victories. It had come as rather a shock, when he later began to participate in some of these, to find that the painters had unaccountably left out the intestines. Perhaps they just weren't very good at them. The Major hated the map. It was the map of a city. A city wasn't a place for cavalry, for heaven's sake. Of course there had been casualties among the men. Three of them had been deaths. Even a cavalry helmet is not a lot of use against a ballistic cobblestone. And a trooper had been pulled off his horse in Dolly Sisters and, bluntly, mobbed to death. And that was tragic and terrible, and, unfortunately, inevitable, once fools had decided to use cavalry in a city with as many alleys as Ankh-Morpork. The Major didn't think of his superiors as fools, of course, since it would follow that everyone who obeyed them were fools. He used the term unwise, and felt worried when he used it. As for the rest of the casualties, three of them had been men knocked senseless by riding into hanging shop signs while pursuing, well, people, when it came down to it, because with the smoke and darkness who could tell who the real enemy was? The idiots had apparently assumed that anyone running away was the enemy— and they'd been the luckier idiots, because men who rode their horses into dark alleys which twisted this way and that, and got narrower and narrower, and then realised that it had all gone quiet, and their horse couldn't turn round, well, they were men who learned how fast a man could run in cavalry boots. He totted up the reports. Broken bones, bruises, one man suffering from friendly stab by a comrade's sabre, he looked across the makeshift table at Captain Tom Wrangle of Lord Salarchi's Light Infantry, who glanced up from his own paperwork and gave him a weak smile. They'd been at school together, and Wrangle, the Major knew, was a lot brighter than him. "'What it look like to you, Tom?' said the Major. "'We've lost nearly eighty men,' said the Captain. "'What? That's terrible!' "'Oh, about sixty of them are deserters, as far as I can see. You tend to get that in this sort of mess. Some have probably just popped home to see dear old Mum.' "'Oh, deserters!' We've had some of those, too. In the cavalry. What would you call a man who leaves his horse behind? An infantryman. As for the rest, well, as far as I can see, only six or seven of them went down to definite enemy action. Three men got stabbed in alleyways, for example. Sounds like enemy action to me. Yes, Clive, but you were born in Querm. Only because my mother was visiting her aunt and the coach was late, said the Major, going red. If you cut me in half, you'd find Ankh Morpork written on my heart. Really? Well, let's hope it doesn't come to that said Tom. Anyway, getting murdered in alleyways is just part of life in the big city. But they were armed men, swords, helmets. Valuable loot, Clive. But I thought the city watch took care of the gangs. Tom looked at his friend over the top of his paperwork. Are you suggesting that we ask for police protection? Anyway, there isn't any, not any more. Some of the watchmen are with us, for what good they are, and the rest either got beaten up or ran away. More deserters? Frankly, Clive... Everyone's drifting away so fast by tomorrow we'll be feeling pretty lonely. The men paused as a corporal brought in some more messages. They thumbed through them gloomily. Well, it's gone quiet anyway, said the Major. Supper time, said the Captain. The Major threw up his hands. This isn't war. A man throws a rock, walks round a corner, and he's an upstanding citizen again. There's no rules. 
The captain nodded. Their training hadn't covered this sort of thing. They'd studied maps of campaigns with broad, sweeping plains and the occasional patch of high ground that had to be taken. Cities were to be laid siege to or defended. They weren't for fighting in. You couldn't see, you couldn't group, you couldn't manoeuvre, and you were always going to be up against people who knew the place like their own kitchen. And you definitely didn't want to fight an enemy that had no uniform. "'Where's your lordship?' said the captain. "'Gone to the ball, same as yours.' "'And what were your orders, may I ask?' "'He told me to do whatever I considered necessary to carry out our original objectives.' "'Did he write that down?' "'No.' "'Pity. Neither did mine.' They looked at one another. And then Wrangle said, "'Well, there's no actual unrest at the moment, as such. My father said all this happened in his time. He said it's best just to keep the lid on it. There's only a limited number of cobblestones,' he said. "'It's almost ten, said the Major. "'People will be going to bed soon, surely.' Their joint expression radiated the fervent hope that it had all calmed down. No one in their right mind wanted to be in a position where he was expected to do what he thought best. "'Well, Clive, provided there's no—' the captain began. There was a commotion outside the tent, and then a man stepped inside. He was bloodstained and smoke-blackened, his face lined with pink where sweat had trickled through the dreadful grime. A crossbow was slung across his back, and he'd acquired a bandolier of knives. And he was mad. The Major recognised the look. The eyes were too bright, the grin too fixed. "'Ah, right,' he said, and removed a large brass knuckle-duster from his right hand. "'Sorry about your sentry, gentlemen, but he didn't want to let me in, even though I gave him the password. Are you in charge?' "'Who the hell are you?' said the Major, standing up. The man seemed unimpressed. "'Carser. Sergeant Carser,' he said. "'A sergeant? In that case you can—' "'From Cable Street,' Carser added. Now the Major hesitated. Both the soldiers knew about the unmentionables, although, if asked, they probably wouldn't have been able to articulate exactly what it was they knew. Unmentionables worked in secret, behind the scenes. They were a lot more than just watchmen. They reported directly to the patrician. They had a lot of pull. You didn't mess with them. They were not people to cross. It didn't matter that this man was only a sergeant— he was an unmentionable. And, what was worse, the Major realised that the creature could see what he was thinking, and was enjoying the view. "'Yep,' said Carser, "'that's right, and it's lucky for you that I'm here, soldier boy.' "'Soldier boy,' thought the Major. And there were men listening who'd remember that. "'Soldier boy.' "'How so?' he said. "'While you and your shiny soldiers have been prancing around chasing washerwomen,' said Carser, pulling up the tent's only vacant chair and sitting down, "'the real trouble's been happening down Treacomine Road. Do you know it?' "'What are you talking about? "'We haven't had any reports about any disturbances down there, man.' "'Yeah, right. Don't you think that's strange?' "'The Major hesitated. "'A vague memory bobbed at the back of his mind, "'and there was a grunt from the captain "'who pushed a piece of paper across to him. "'He glanced at it and recalled. "'One of my captains was down there this afternoon "'and said everything was under control,' he said. "'Really? Who's control?' said Carser. "'He leaned back in his chair and put his boots on the desk.' The Major stared at them, but the boots showed no sign of embarrassment. "'Remove your feet from my desk,' he said coldly. Carser's eyes narrowed. "'You and who's army?' he said. "'Mine, as a matter of fact.' The Major looked into Carser's eyes and wished he hadn't. Mad. He'd seen eyes like that on the battlefield. Very slowly, with exaggerated care, Carser swung his feet off the table— then he pulled out a handkerchief, made grimy with unguessable humours, huffed theatrically on the wood, and polished it industriously. 
I do beg your pardon so very much, he said. However, while you gentlemen have been keeping your desk nice and clean, a canker, as they say, <laughs> is eating at the very heart of the city. Has anyone told you that the Cable Street Watch House has been burned to the ground? With, we believe, the loss of the lives of poor Captain Swing and at least one of our technical people. Swing, begot, said Captain Wrangle. That is what I said. All the scum your lads have been driving out of Dolly Sisters and all the other nests, well, they've ended up down there. The Major looked at the report. But our patrol said that everything seemed to be in hand. The watch were very visible on the streets, and people were showing the flag and singing the national anthem, he said. There you are, then, said Carser. Do you ever sing the national anthem in the street, Major? Well, no. Who did his lordship said down there, said Wrangle. Major Mountjoy Standfast thumbed through his papers. His face fell. Rust, he said. Oh, dear, that's a blow. I dare say the man is dead, said Carser, and the Major tried not to look slightly more cheerful. The person in charge down there now calls himself Sergeant Keel, but he is an imposter. The real Keel is in the mortuary. How do you know all this? said the Major. We, in the particulars, have ways of finding things out, said Carser. I've heard, murmured the captain. Martial law, gentlemen, means that the military comes to the aid of the civil power, said Carser, and that's me right now. Of course, you could send a couple of runners up to the ball, but I don't reckon that'd be a good career move. So what I'm asking is for your men to assist us with a little surgical strike. The Major stared at him. There was now no limit to the distaste he had for Carser. "'but he hadn't been a major for very long, "'and when you've just been promoted "'you hope to stay that way long enough "'for the braid to get a tarnish.' "'He forced himself to smile. "'You and your men have had a long day, Sergeant,' he said. "'Why don't you go along to the mess-tent "'while I consult with my fellow officers?' "'Carser stood up with a suddenness "'that made the major flinch, "'then leaned forward with his knuckles on the desk. "'You do that, Sonny Jim,' he said, "'with a grin like the edge of a rusty saw. "'Then he turned and strode out into the night.' In the silence that followed, Wrangle said, "'His name is on the list of officers that Swing sent us yesterday, I'm afraid, "'and uh, he's technically correct about the law.' "'You mean we have to take orders from him?' "'No, but he's entitled to request assistance from you.' "'Am I entitled to refuse?' "'Oh, yes, of course, but—' "'I'd have to tell his lordship why.' "'Exactly.' "'But that man's an evil bastard. "'You know the sort, the kind that joins up the pillaging, "'the kind you have to end up hanging as an example to the men.' Um, what now? Well, he's right about one thing. I've been looking at the reports, and, well, it's odd. It's all been very quiet down towards Treacle Road. That's good, isn't it? It's unbelievable, Clive, when you put it all together. Even the watch house didn't get attacked, it says here. Er, uh, and your Captain Burns says he met this Keel chap, or someone who said he was Keel, and he says that if the man's a watch sergeant, then he, Burns, is a monkey's uncle.' He says the man is used to serious command. I think he rather took to him, to tell you the truth. Hey, gods, Tom, I need some help here, said the Major. Then send out some gallopers right away, a little informal patrolling, perhaps. Get some proper intelligence. You can afford to wait half an hour. Right, right, good idea, said the Major, steaming with relief. See to it, could you? End of CD 8